Good morning again and welcome back to the service. And I believe after the message, I'll turn the time back to you to close the service this morning. You probably normally do that. It's uh, good to be with you. I've enjoyed the Sunday school and I was reminded again this morning of God's wisdom in joining different gifts together. You have the visionary and uh, sometimes confrontational Paul being joined up with a merciful and gentle Barnabas. And there's wisdom in that, and I think these different giftings need each other, and we see that working together very well in Paul and Barnabas. And to me, it's sad that in the next couple of chapters, uh, when Barnabas tries to do the same kind of uh, rescue work with John Mark that he did with Saul, uh, it seemed like their ways divided because of that. And I would just encourage us, as we have different gifts in the church, to recognize their strengths and their weaknesses and how to work them and mesh them together is good for the church. It's good for the body. Now, what we've done so far this morning, you might think is mundane, but I believe it's very close to God's heart. We've had God's people coming together to worship together and exalt Him together, learn together. God indwells the believer, but I believe He indwells in a special way the church. And so I wonder what it feels like to Him when we come together and what it feels like to Him when we don't come together because he uh, desires to indwell the church in a special way. I don't think we often realize the privilege we have of worshiping together in a church like we have. I think uh, sometimes it takes somebody coming in to help us recognize uh, what God has given us. Uh, I sometimes quote Harry Argo. He is a man from from military background that has come into a beachy-type church and is deeply appreciative of what he's found there. He teaches on technology. He you might have heard of him or heard him at some point. But he uh, he talks about the mainstream churches he's been with, and he says, lonely out there. There's not much constancy. There's a constant flow of people coming in and going out. Never quite know who you'll find and who you won't. And uh, the brotherhood that is constant in fellowship like this is hard to find. Now, just to confirm here this morning, uh, we do not use the CLP Sunday School book at our church. We just pick a passage of scripture and work through it a portion at a time. And so uh, when I come to a place like this and pick up a Sunday school lesson, it wasn't that I read it before or realized what was in it. And so you studied about the church this morning, and I'm going to be talking about that. And it was, uh, I won't call it coincidence, but it was not foreknowledge or any attempt to uh, speak over or add to. But I'm aware this morning that that there's two parts to church life. There's two sides to it. On one hand, you have the mechanics of it. You have the things that make the structure happen. You have the the standards and the protocol and the the statement of faith and practice and expected order of life or discipline. And that's the the shape it takes, the structure it has. And I guess some of that is necessary. It's a necessary part. I think uh, some people struggle with that. Some people resist that part. And I know even at home there's a few couple of young people that are struggling with this whole concept of the need for that and aren't standards just man-made rules and isn't Scripture enough and is our concept of authority right? And uh, that's the question some people have. And I believe this struggle seems to swell in intensity. I know we discussed this probably here at Bible school years ago and there's this ongoing discussion about this and there's this backlash against organized Christianity. Some people call it corporate church. It's just like a corporation. People can come and go, and the church will just be rigid. It's not going to move or change. And some people think that's a problem. 
Many people would rather serve the Lord as free agents without the structure of a church life as part of their experience. But I would suggest that the church structure gives it shape, and shape is important because uh, a hammer is shaped to do a hammer's work, and I don't think you could redesign it and get it much better than that. A watch is designed to do what a watch does, and so it needs to have a certain reason for the way it's shaped and formed, and I believe that's what we find as part of the structure. We need to be shaped and administered accordingly. But that's one part. But the other side of church life is a product of the relationships, the humility, the interaction, the grace that all of us adds to the brotherhood. And that's what exists inside the structure. It's the life of it. It's the grace, the giving, the brotherhood, the mutual knowing of each other and support of that. And I believe that's the heart and soul and the outworking of Christ's desire, I believe, for his body. And I believe it's entirely possible to have strong standards and well-organized structure and well-oiled machinery and sound practice. But on the inside of that, the elements that form relationships and that aid the life and the, the beauty of the church can be missing. And when that happens, there's fear instead of trust. There's tension instead of, of a feeling of unity. There's uh, maybe independence and incohesive attitudes instead of a submission and a humility with each other. And when that happens, even though the outside remains rigid, the inside sort of starts crumbling and falling apart. And sometimes we see people running away from a church, and in their minds they're running away from the structure. They don't like it. And maybe in reality they're running away from a lack of life and brotherhood and, and, and warmth inside it. That could be a reason. Um, I believe we're much less likely to react to what we see as the necessary structure in church life if what's within it is alive and vibrant and warm and well. I think that has to be part of our understanding of what church is. Our church has some structure, maybe not as much as we should. I think we're sometimes a little weak on that. But we do have brotherhood agreements. We have, we see value in accountability and discipline and we believe in the need to have a place to submit one to another, and so that's important. So into this environment a number of years ago came a family from a Baptist background, and some of you may know them from Bible School Connections, uh, the Mills family. I'll just use the name because you might know them. And they attended for a number of years before they decided to apply for membership and plug in and be part of our church. And uh, so they... Wanted to move closer. They lived an hour away. They had to drive, so they bought land close to some other, just neighbors to some other brethren in the church. And we have some tradesmen in our congregation. And when they bought this land, they, I guess they're closed on the house the same day they closed on the land up here or broke ground for their new house. And the church got into this project and jumped in it and did what they could to help. They broke ground in January, which you might not do in in Minnesota, but they did try to pour concrete at, at 10 or 17 degrees. They had to use heaters to keep things from freezing. And they helped build it. They helped work at the electric and the plumbing and got everything done. They moved in in three months, which is pretty good rate. And, uh, and that's a message about brotherhood. Just to see a need and jump in and plug in. That has nothing to do with structure. This has nothing to do with the statement of faith and practice or the discipline. This is just about 
love and encouragement and sacrificing to help a need in the church. A few years ago, this man drove his oldest daughter up here to Maranatha Bible School. And uh might have left on a Thursday, I can't remember, but he drove all the way up, nonstop. That's about 20 hours, 21 hours of driving. Then he was here for about four hours. Then he turned around and was going to drive nonstop home again. But on the way home, he ran into some ice and snow and really slowed him down. And he finally got home about 4 o'clock on Sunday morning when he made it back from his nonstop round trip to Maranatha Bible School with his oldest daughter. Well, I somehow knew he had gotten in really late, really early. And uh, imagine my surprise when I pulled into church that morning at 9 o'clock, 9.30. And there was John coming to church. And I walked up to him in the parking lot and said, John, you just got home. Why aren't you home sleeping? And he said, I wouldn't miss this for anything, he said. He wouldn't be caught home sleeping in this church. He's going to be there. And uh, I held revivals at another church one time, about four hours from home in West Virginia. Saturday night, here comes John Mills and his family. All the way, four hours drive, just to be there for one service and support what we were doing in West Virginia. And uh, we were given a little cabin to stay in that week, so we had a nice, ample place. And I told him, you don't have to drive back after church. Just come stay with us, and you can be here and go home tomorrow. Stay here for church if you want. He said, no, there's a chair up front, and it's going to be empty if I'm not there to fill it tomorrow morning. So he turned around and drove all the way home again to be home for church the next morning. And there's things in our church that they've struggled to get used to, things like uh, the veiling and... Um, some things about discipline and some questions like that. But when he decided, he was all in. And his example and his commitment, uh, that's material you can build church with. That's the kind of commitment you can build church with. And I learned something through this whole experience and that love there in the brotherhood it's what most invites commitment to brotherhood. You can't force without that. You can't force a person to commit to that. You can't force him to be at church at, on at Sunday morning when he got home at 4 o'clock. You could never require that. But something of the love and interaction in his life invited that, and he gave it willingly back. So there's these two sides of the church life, and we need life. We need structure. In fact, uh, some of you know Dale Heise. He preached a message a number of years ago about the interaction of these two parts. He said, structure without life is possible, but you never find life without structure. And all through nature, every time you find an entity that is alive, you find something to hold it and contain it. And it can be very small, from a one-celled organism to a huge oak tree. And the acorn is quite small, but if you plant it, as the life grows, the structure grows around. And as it gets bigger, there's enough room to hold it. And, and sure, the, the oak tree can die and it's standing there, a dead oak tree. But as long as it's alive, they both go together very well. And we see that in church life. I believe as churches grow, the need grows, the building has to grow, the programs have to match it. And we expand into, we, we create room for ourselves as we grow. And maybe there's examples of churches that are all about structure without the life, and I pray that would never happen. So I'd like to be part of this glorious church that Jesus spoke of in Ephesians. I'd like to discuss these two things, and it's not going to be exhaustive at all, but 
But what is the design and purpose of the church that Jesus founded? And then what is the grace and life within it? And what are the things that we can contribute to it to make sure that that part never fails? It's always part of our uh, understanding and experience in church. Paul said uh, that Jesus wants to present himself with a church that's spotless and without wrinkle. But in doing that, he, he left it largely up to the church to get that done. If you go to Revelation and Jesus words to the church, and his warnings to the church, he said, I'm holding something against you because there's something in the church that's wrong. So it's Jesus' vision and our responsibility. It's a, it's a working together to make this work out well. Well, the one thing that I believe is abundantly clear in Scripture is that Jesus owns the church. Jesus is in the midst of the church. That's a beautiful thing we see in Revelation 1 when Jesus met John and he, he revealed himself to John as standing among the candlesticks and holding seven stars in his hand. And later in the chapter, he reveals what that meant. He says, the candlesticks that I'm standing among is showing how I walk among the churches. And Jesus does that. He is among the churches. He is viewing the churches, encouraging the churches, and uh, shepherding them. And the angels, the messengers of the churches, he holds in a very special and important place and using them as a tool in his purpose. And if we would read that, that would have a special message to both ministry and congregation alike. We're in this together, and uh, those that are called to minister to the church need to realize their great responsibility and their uh, their accountability to the, the shepherd, the great shepherd. And those of us that serve as, as part of a congregation need to recognize that call and honor them for their work's sake. But that should be a sobering thought to everyone, that Jesus is in the midst and he is central to his church. I believe church administration can go too far in two directions. Some struggle with being too passive and too slow to do anything. And they forget that they're under shepherds to the great shepherd responsible for what's going on in the church, and they're, they're lax about that. The other extreme is to be too controlling and too uh, intermediary, getting between the, the, the one shepherd and the sheep and inserting themselves there in a way that's probably too much, not remembering their authority is not their own. That was the error of the papacy in the Catholic Church, I believe. It grew to the point where it felt like it was standing in the place of God, in the place of Jesus Christ, almost to an extreme where there's no way to Jesus Christ except through them, the Lord, uh, the, 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 the church system. And I believe that error, though we would recognize it in some, may be repeated uh, in others without even meaning to. Uh, this, I hope, is never true, but I just remember hearing of a possible discussion that was held about church standards to the point that the minister was asked, if Jesus came, could he even be part of our church? And he said, well, if he'd keep our standards, he could. I hope that was never said, but I would hope you'd never have that attitude about it. Let's go to Ephesians this morning, chapter 2. We'll read a few verses in verses 14 to 22. This is the foundation of how the church comes together and what forms it. Ephesians 2.14. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, 
even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, so that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them which were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. And there's much there, and maybe without directly referring to it, this is a lot of what we're going to be thinking about, how it's formed, what it's for, how it comes together. But in this passage, I see Jesus as the great reconciler. And this is just another indication of the centrality of Jesus in the congregation. It's his church. And he stands alone as a mediator between every man and God. There's no other mediator but one between fallen humanity and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. And so he's reconciling this way. As we come under conviction of the Spirit and as we cry out to him for for forgiveness and for inclusion and acceptance. He's the one that makes it happen. It's his blood, it's his initiative in bringing a sinful man into the presence of a holy God, forgiven, redeemed, and made whole. That's the first reconciliation he does. But the second one is doing it at the same time. At the same time he's, he's moving us in a, uh, vertical relationship. He's also healing a horizontal relationship. And he says here he's broken down the middle wall of partition between this one and that one and bringing into himself and of two making one new man. And this works for everyone. It works for Jew and Gentile. It works for black and white. It works for uh, everyone on every side of every dividing line in human experience. It brings them together in Jesus Christ. He preached peace to the far and to the near and made one new body. And so remember that. He's doing this and he's doing this all at once. And brotherhood is a triangle. I have a dad, and so I'm my dad's first son. But my dad had other sons, and they're his, their fa- he's their father too. It's the fact that I own him as father and Gabriel and Michael own him as father. That means there's something that exists between me and them. And in the church, the the brotherhood of believers is a product of two relationships. It's a product of our relationship with the father and also of our relationship one with another because we're brought in, made one. And there is an error made when either of those relationships is minimized. Either of those connections are destroyed or cut off or made unnecessary. Imagine a church in which it's all about you and me. It's all about our common connection, our friendship. It's about our uh, how well we enjoy each other. But without the Lord Jesus Christ, all we have is a social club. It's nothing more than a place to have fun together. But imagine a, reti- a church in which the only relationship with the matter was between me and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about me and him, and then you and him, but nothing matters between me and you. So that wouldn't really be a church either. 
And so the church can only be the church when both of these relationships are in full view. The second thing I see here is that Jesus is not only the great reconciler, he is the architect of the church. And the verse 20 we read, speaking there of uh, building on the foundation, the chief cornerstone, that very much sounds like 1 Peter 2.5. In 1 Peter 2.5 it says, You also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable by Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 2.18 it speaks of God setting the members in the body as he wants. And so he's able to do that. Now, I am not a mason, but just from observation, I would assume that laying block and laying brick is easier than laying stone and, and rock. Anybody a mason here, I'm going to speak in things that you know about better than I do. But if, if you're a mason of stones, it requires taking something that is uneven and misshapen and natural and deciding how to best fit it together with others that are the same weakness and unnatural shapes and differences. That's how people are. We're not blocks. We don't come to the Lord Jesus Christ as bricks from the same mold. That would be a little easier, maybe. But we're all unique. We have weaknesses and strengths and protrusions and deficiencies. And, and here's an architect and a builder that can take these things and build them together in something that is solid and strong and long-lasting. I think that's what he was doing with Paul and Barnabas taking one that was so much this way and taking another that was so much that way and putting them together in a team and they could work together very well, for a while at least. But he carefully chooses these unevenness, these stones, and, and makes them work together and aligns them. And there's not only just the aligning and the, the fitting, there's also a shaping and a cutting that goes along with this kind of work to fit us into a specific place. And God knows our, our natural gifts. He also knows our spiritual gifts. He knows how we would fit where we can serve. And we need to let him do that with us. And we also need to understand that he's doing it with my brethren. And so when we come together in one place to serve the Lord together. We must have this acceptance of one another that allows for a, a strong bond between. Jesus is the reconciler and the architect, but he's also the the most important part of the structure. And in, in Scripture, there's, there's three examples of what church is like. There's three pictures that show us how the church works together. Uh, one is the cornerstone and the, bo- the building. Uh, one is the, the body with the head. And I would view uh, John 15, the, br- the vine and the branches, another example a picture of the church. Each of it emphasizes a certain thing. And there's especially two truths that I see emphasized in each of these things. I'm not going to take time to read them. But the, the first truth is very simple, that the relationship with Jesus Christ is essential for being part of his, his church. And every example emphasizes my connection, my relationship, and my dependence upon him. That is essential. And the second is... A relationship with other believers is expected if I'm to take part in the body of Christ. In the example of the vine and the branches, ask yourself the question, where is Christ, where am I, and where is everybody else? Uh, 
You raise grapes up here. I think I saw one somewhere. I planted some at home because that's I like grape juice. And uh, they're not very big yet, but if you sit there and look at a grapevine, you know the main vine, that's coming out of the ground. That's the source of everything up there. And then if you haven't trimmed it very well, this thing starts going everywhere. And you have vine turning into branch here and branch here and intertwining there and all twisted up and one supports the other and they're all, it's a tangle uh, in the church. No branch can lack the relationship with the vine and no branch is up there all by itself. It is intertwined in a way that is impossible to separate or do alone. It's just the way of uh, Grapevine works. You have the head and the body. There's only one head. And there's many, many members. And my connection to the head does not necessarily depend on your connection to the head. But it very much works along with it. And so you can wiggle one finger if you want to, almost anyway. Uh, But it sure works better when it's a hand working together. And so... It's the individual connection, but it's also the unified interaction and mutual uh, working together. Some are far apart. Your fingers don't interact very much with your toes. It might wave to each other in the shower sometimes, but other than that, it's sort of a distant job. They're up here, they're down there, but you sure appreciate the fact that they're there because you benefit each other. In the church, you'll probably have a few that are closer, a few that aren't quite as close, but there's a mutual appreciation for the whole, because all of us belong and all of us have something to do. You have the cornerstone, the building, that's given in First Peter. There's only one cornerstone. And every living stone is set to its example, set to its, its squareness, its uh, orientation. And no stone by itself makes a building. It requires a lot of them together. Now, some people look at these examples and say, well, this just represents the universal church. Everybody, more of a mystical union of all the people in all the world that believe in the Lord. All the teaching that surrounds this very much needs to be worked out in a local congregational way. I'm not denying the fact that there is a group of people that Jesus recognizes is all around the world. There's also the fact that here we are together working out in practical ways the teaching that, that Scripture gives us about the church. What is the purpose here? If you look at these three examples, each one is for a specific and unique thing. The vine, the branches, it's for a fruit bearing. And so here we are in this world, this carnal fallen world. And as a grapevine, we are producing into it spiritual fruit so that those around us can see, can taste, can know what it's like and what Jesus is like. And so we're producing fruit. The head, the body, it's to both care for itself, grow itself, and do things. We're able, as a body, to do that. There's much good that can be done. The reason for the building is uh, given in Ephesians 2, verse 22. I think we read that. In whom ye also are built together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6, it says that you alone by yourself as a Christian... Your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. And we need to remember that because uh, we, we need to treat ourselves and, and act in a way that is conducive to being a temple of God. But here, in a collective way, 
we're a much more finished temple. We're a much more uh, able and uh, larger temple for the purpose of the Holy Spirit. And so God designs a church for a purpose. I believe it's impossible to redesign and make it better. If we try to redesign what Jesus has designed, we're only going to degenerate it and make it worse. You can't take a hammer and take the claws off or take the, take the hammer part off and improve it. You can't take a watch and remove some pieces and make it better. It's just already designed at the maximum possible efficiency, and you can't improve upon that. Sometimes we struggle to understand what is the purpose of the church. We had a series of topics at home dealing with that very subject, trying to understand what the identity is, what the purpose is. Some would say, well, it's to reach the lost, it's to save the world, it's to do humanitarian good, it's about CAM, it's about mission work, it's about many things. It's about a place where the lost can come and find the Lord. Well, here again, quoting Harry Argo, he says, A seeker-friendly church is not a Christian-friendly church because they tend to dumb it down to the sinner's preference. And there's many secondary reasons. There's many things a church can do, but I believe the primary one is for the discipleship and nurture and fellowship of believers primarily. When we get that straight... There's many things that we can do as Christ's body here on the earth. But his primary purpose is that it's a collective uh, group of people with a single-minded desire to be separate from the world, sold out for Christ, making it home. And as we do that, we can do many other things besides. This church has some very specific concerns And because Christ placed into human hands the care and the the preservation of this body, it should be of great concern to us how we go about it. It's a big responsibility. And these things, I guess, very much concern us as a ministry, but also very much everyone that, that wants to see the church prosper. The church is designed to be a place where Believers are nurtured and discipled. That's very much a concern of the church. And I believe the church needs to be known for that, a place where there's good uh, good food, there's good nourishment, there's uh, encouragement, there is accountability, and people care about my spiritual well-being. That's important that they know that. And there's different giftings. We talked about that earlier, but this whole story of this Good Samaritan, we call it the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan, uh, bears this out. And sometimes we have that gifting in the church. Some people have that natural ability to see a need and just be drawn to it. And they want to go to it. They want to bring them in. There's people in the community that see needs in the neighbors and they're evangelizing and, and looking people up. And that's very needful. That's what the Samaritan did. We need that gift in the church. But you notice what the Samaritan did. He brought that hurt man into the inn Gave him to the innkeeper, dropped him off, and left. So his job was done. And then the innkeeper took over. And the innkeeper had to do a daily task of dressing wounds, changing bandages, feeding, uh, checking on his well-being, taking his temperature, uh, whatever goes on with healing a sick person. We need that in the church. 
And it is sad for people with the Good Samaritan uh, gift to bring people in to the church and go out and find somebody else only to come back and realize that person's out the other, other side. Nobody really cared about helping him find a connection and find a, a place to belong and a way to heal. So we need both. And I'm not sure which of the two would be more important. And that's, that's a concern of every member. And I 100% believe that in a church, this job does not only belong to ministry. This is a job that anyone can do. And I believe it's very good when a minister can say, we have this need, brother so-and-so, could you just mind being responsible here and making sure you meet with this person occasionally and, and make sure they're doing okay. Let me know if you need help, but you can take care of this for a while. Uh, people have that gift, and we can use it. That's one concern of the church. Another concern of the church is to keep the doctrine sound. And this comes from 1 Timothy 4.16. Take heed to thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Now, proper doctrine is simply a solid understanding of truth. Doctrine goes awry when we take one truth and follow it to its extreme possibility while ignoring other truths. It's the body of truth. It's the, it's the sum. It's the narrative of scripture together as we understand the teaching of the Bible. And that doctrine is important because that's what we base our practice on. Our understanding of scripture very much influences how we're going to live our daily life and what comes out of that. And I believe that the church is meant to be a steward of that body of truth, to receive it, to care for it, to understand it, to pass it on, so that the next generation has has that to work with. That's one thing that Bible school is good for. There's many strange ideas out there we need to be aware of. There's many teachers. Not all are bad teachers, but not all are good teachers. But there's a whole river of teaching out there. There's a There's a very... It takes some discernment sometimes even to distinguish the difference between some of the New Age thinking and spirituality because there's there's a use of common terms. There's a, a, uh, a similar understanding of man and his spiritual nature. But there's something deeply, deeply flawed about it. And so don't just go into a Christian bookstore and pick up anything off the shelf because some of these things are mixed. And so you need to guard this body of doctrine. And beyond that, we need to keep our practice holy. We refer to that. We talked about Jesus' warning to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And I believe that when a person uh, sins or trips up or makes a mistake, I guess it's not a mistake, but uh, he's responsible for that. He's initially responsible. Let's say he, he, the pressure was too great, he went into politics, or the pressure was too great, he fell into morality. Initially, that's his problem. He owns that. But when the church knows it and decides to just ignore it, then it becomes... The church's problem. We own it because we're not taking steps toward that. And so we need to be, be aware of that. Uh, we believe that Scripture only, we only truly believe when we put Scripture into daily practice and into daily life. And there's two ways to do that. Either you as an individual are going to look at it and decide how to do it, as a church, we're going to work on it together and, and try to come up with a way we can do it. 
And one does not always replace the other. There's, there's a great need for both. We need to be thinking people, obedient people in an individual way. But I believe the church is going to move forward. We need to work on this together and agree on a path forward to live out a Christian life that, that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to keep our membership pure. This is a struggle sometimes because you have the, the Paul syndrome that maybe quickly cut somebody off or the Barnabas attitude that would never cease to extend mercy and give him innumerable second chances. But I believe that the church faces a choice when there is sin in the body to either continue this way and eventually degrade the church or deal with it and continue in purity. And there's two ways to get sin out of the church, and by far the preferable is when the sinner repents and comes back to a place of recognizing his fault. And that is a cleansing to the church. And when that does not work, then other steps must be taken. Matthew 18 points that out. But all the love and mercy and concern we might feel for one individual that is not willing to to surrender to the Lord and the body uh, can never supersede our concern for the health of the brotherhood. I believe a church life, like I've just described, in some ways is more difficult than the churches that required nothing of me. <laughs> It'd be easier just to live my life and come to church and sing and worship and go home and take care of myself. But I also believe that the church I've just described has the greatest chance of being stewards of God's truth, passing to the next generation, and having a congregation that gets the closest to the the pure church that Jesus wants as his bride. I'd like to take you up to Ephesians. I'm going to read, switch gears a little bit here. We're in Ephesians. Let's go to chapter 4. We're going to read some verses at the very beginning and the very end of this chapter. And as we do it, we need to understand that the church life is simply the sum and outworking of the Christian life. So the only way this congregation can prosper is for each person in this auditorium to personally prosper in spiritual walk and contribute that then into the into the whole. We sometimes ask God to bless the church, and we should. Do you know how he blesses the church? Well, I believe he blesses you. As you are connected with him, he pours his blessing and grace into your life, and you in turn contribute that into the relationships and the outworking of our congregation. And that's how God blesses the church. Let's read here in Ephesians 4. 1 to 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's go now to the bottom of it, chapter, or verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Verse 29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good, to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, Forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So in this passage, I see attitudes that build up the church and attitudes that tear it down. 
if the ones at the very beginning of this verse are in effect, you have a building, you have a body. If the ones at the end of are in effect, you have maybe a pile of sticks or maybe a pile of stones. There's no real cohesion. If all we have in our church is structure, then all of us are going to be stuffed inside there like marbles in a jar. All it takes is for the structure to rupture and we'll whoosh everywhere. But it takes a melting together. It takes a softening of the personality and a softening of the individuality to make a church work together. Before discussing the positives, I'd like just to point out some of the negatives here, the things that tear it down. Paul speaks here of lying, of insincerity, of dishonesty. And good brotherhood always requires trust. And dishonesty destroys that. Anytime there's deceit or dishonesty or secrecy about things or insincerity, it it holds people at a distance and makes makes for uh, disconnections. I'll never experience God's will for brotherhood if I'm like that. We had a lady in Guatemala years ago who who seemed to always be at the center of problems. And there's always like, you could always see the smoke, you could never see the fire. She, people would accuse and you'd go to this person and sit down and say, oh no, I would never, of course not, they have it all wrong. And, I've, and every time it was like that, like a slippery as a fish. I mean, you just couldn't pin them down anything. And there was just enough secrecy there that I don't think this person ever understood or ever really experienced the... Uh, the unity that could have been hers had she been open and honest and sincere. It is required in a church that we learn to trust each other enough to be honest with each other. And it's also required in a church, doubly required, that we guard the trust of those who are honest because that can also in turn destroy trust. If what I hear in in confidence and two days later I tell it in public, That's a very damaging thing. Paul speaks of anger and wrath here. You know, there's something about Christ-like, gentle predictability that invites people close. And anger is the opposite. Because anger is unpredictable. Anger is carnal. It is not spiritual. Anger hurts people. People might never know what triggers it. And it raises defenses. It causes mistrust and it's destructive That has no place in a church that is to be built together in oneness. There is bitterness. There is malice. This is probably a message in itself, and I'm not prepared to give that. But I think bitterness is an ill that is seldom self-diagnosed. It is usually visible to other people around me long before I even understand it myself. And bitterness, if I own it, if I have it and don't see it, I might label it by many other names. I'm not bitter, I'm just holding people accountable. I'm not bitter, I just have discernment. I can see problems in other people. I'm not bitter, I'm just correcting things. Um, But when bitterness is present, peace is absent. You cannot have both working together well. Either in your life or in a congregation. It can't, it can't work. And I remember very well, uh, not here, okay, but ministers' meetings, not in my church either, ministers' meetings where there was one present that was constantly critical and constantly pointing out the fact that we had missed something there, didn't do something over here. And 
it sort of shuts you down. It sort of makes you sit there and not sure what he's going to say next. Now, we felt that there. We must love people. We must invite them to fuller uh, unity there. But, but that's what can drive apart and destroy things. So these things are real things. They're things that we might struggle with. And they also militate the kind of congregation that Jesus wants us to enjoy and repent of them. But let's go to the better things. In the very first part of the verse, Jesus teaches them things that are very beautiful. And we can strive for these things. Maybe don't fully grasp their potential. But but church life succeeds when when individuality softens and it fails when pride sets us apart in our uh, personal importance or personal aspirations. Jesus not only taught us about humility, but he showed us humility. And you can go back and read in Philippians. It says that, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And he shows what Jesus was willing to do, coming from heaven to earth. And not only from heaven to earth, but from earth to the lowest position possible for a human to, to own. And then you have John 13. It says he rose from supper and took a towel and washed the disciples' feet. Do you ever notice when you read that chapter twice a year maybe in your feet washing service, <laughs> the things that Jesus knew when he did that. He knew some things. First of all, he knew that the Father had given him all things. He uh, had nothing to lose, no reputation at stake. He already had it all. The Father had given him all things. Uh, he knew that he had come from God. There was no insecurity about his origins or where he stood. He knew he was going to God. No doubts about his destiny. And in that security, that perfect security of where he stood, who he was, and what was at stake, he took the towel and knelt down and washed the disciples' feet. And it seems to me that it's often personal insecurity that motivates things that don't look like this. It's a feeling that I, I'm threatened and I need to defend myself and I need to make sure everybody knows uh, who I am in this life. And to give a person like that a towel and tell them to wash somebody's feet is almost like underscoring his inferiority or, or emphasizing his, his lowliness. Um, but when we are secure in our calling from God, we can do this with no risk. And that's how brotherhood works. It works with a towel in hand. It does things for the good of others. It restores things. There is nothing so easy as seeing dirt in another person's life and complaining about it. But this attitude takes a towel and kneels down and washes it. The towel is a peacemaking attitude, and that's hard work. Jesus often stood in that position between disciples even, making peace one with the other. The towel is a servant attitude. No person too lowly, no person too humble for me to yet get beneath and serve in order to lift them up and bless their life. Scripture is very clear that that pride invites resistance from God and humility invites grace. And a church full of humble people is a grace-filled congregation. That's a beautiful... It's like opening many valves so the grace of God can pour into the midst and do beautiful things. second thing that it mentions here, I see this in verse two about is the presence of love in the church. And uh, Hebrews 13 says that, let brotherly love continue. And I wonder what the difference is between brotherly love and other kinds of love. And maybe if you have brothers, you understand it. 
Brotherly love is, is not the sappy, sentimental kind that gushes about itself. It's just the kind that does what has to be done. You don't see brothers just crying on each other's shoulders, telling them how much they love each other. But they do do things for each other. They just do it. In the church, that's the kind of love we need. Just do it. There's a need, let's fill it. There's a possibility, let's do something about that. Let that continue. Uh, and I can give many examples. I, our driveway developed some muddy spots going up our drive, and and the uh, I was coming home, came home from work, and there was gravel in the muddy spots. I didn't take time to do it myself. And if my wife hadn't happened to look out the window just the right time, she would never have known who did it. Another brother was getting gravel, and he happened to remember he's got muddy spots in his driveway. I just stop in and try to cover that up, and he did. And he was going to leave without giving that away, but he didn't quite escape in time. That kind of love, that kind of thing. Our van lost a hubcap, and uh, I didn't rush out and buy a new hubcap. I'd rather drive with four, but I'm not that concerned about it to rush off and buy a new one. So I was driving with three hubcaps for a while. One day I was washing the van and noticed there's four hubcaps. It's not missing. What happened? Who? What happened there? And I had no idea. It just appeared. Well, then we lost another hubcap. We live in Floyd County, Virginia, you know, and some rough roads. And uh, I didn't think anything of it, just another missing hubcap. We'll fix it sometime. Before I knew it, there was four hubcaps again. I had no idea who did it. Well, then one of us happened to hit a rock on a dirt road and broke the hubcap. And I quickly rushed out to buy a whole set because I didn't want to make the other person feel like I was taking advantage of their generosity. And they never would have said. It did come up in a conversation one time later, and we found out who it was. I needed a water heater. And uh, I was asking somebody in church, how hard is it to change a water heater? I could do it myself. I got home from work one day. went down under the house where I keep it to do some work, and there's a water heater. <laughs> I guess somebody had pity. And, uh, and if it wouldn't have been for somebody looking out the window, I'd never known who it was. And, uh, you know, maybe people do that because they feel responsible to the ministry. This poor minister doesn't know how to take care of his own stuff. Uh, and maybe they should feel responsible. But I'll also suggest that in our congregation sometimes, there are people that feel disconnected. Maybe not quite plugged in. Maybe not quite sure where they fit or if they fit. And they don't have that deep sense of belonging that some of us feel. And I'll suggest that... Uh, you know, don't ignore your ministry. Uh, watch their hubcaps. You can do something for them sometime. But keep an eye on the people that are feeling marginalized. And what would happen if we turn some of this warmth that way and see what would happen as we connect that way? Because that has a beautiful result. This brotherly love leads to a final point in this passage, and that is the unity of spirit. And that's one effect that this interaction of love has. It's an important aid in, in the unity of the Spirit that must exist in a good congregation. And I know that unity is at first a commitment to truth. There is no unity besides that one. But I believe that love is the best co-worker that, that truth ever had. And uh, it's a bonding agent. Um, in 1 Corinthians 12, it says that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one be honored, all the members rejoice. So that mutual caring 
does much to make sure there's no schisms, no cracking, no divisions in the body. We're crossing with fibers of love, this whole thing. We're trying to keep it tied together. I would suggest that a mutual feeling about truth is not enough always to keep a church together. In fact, uh, every year many, many churches prove that point. They speak the same language. They're all the same color. They all come from the same background. They've been raised in the same setting. They own the same doctrine, and they split anyway. Uh, it's too bad. Keeping the unity of the Spirit. And I believe that, that brotherhood is one of God's greatest blessings to the Christian. And I believe that uh, it's designed to meet the needs of God's people. I think it is. And I believe it's possible to exist without a church. I believe some people have been faithful to the Lord in situations they could not go to church. But it's a little bit like surviving on a desert island on coconuts and raw fish. Not a lot of dimension you can survive. There's not a lot of enjoyment in that. But in a church body, we have much broader uh, possibilities. But I also believe that the church will never be an easy thing to maintain and to pass on. As long as we're human, as long as we're called to live in such close interactions together, there's always going to be room for misunderstanding, clashes, and difficulties. And uh, sometimes people suffer through what happens there. And for whatever reason, many people have come out of churches really hurting. Uh, relational problems, misunderstandings. I know there's always two sides to a story, but I would just like to suggest this morning, if 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 you were here, having come here from a situation where you felt, you feel like putting up walls. There's people like that. I talked to a young man after church one time in the middle aisle. He shed tears and said, the situation he'd come out of, his parents had been excommunicated, his teaching job had been taken away, and he just felt like he could never learn to trust another church. And I don't think he's done well ever since. But the tendency is to raise walls and say, no way, you're not going to get a handle on me. I'll keep everybody at a distance so that I can't be hurt again. Well, walls work that way. It does keep people at a distance, but it also keeps you at a distance. And the very things that God wants to use brotherhood to bless your life in are excluded by those very same walls. And I wish we had easy answers, but I'd like to suggest a couple of things here. First of all, if you feel that way about church, do remember that the imperfections of church life are very temporary. There will come a day when God will finish cleansing it, all the carnality will leave, all the hypocrisy will leave, and it will be a perfect church in God's presence. So this temporary situation of imperfect church life is short. On the other hand, the choices you make in response to this temporary, imperfect church situation are eternal choices. They do have eternal consequences. And offense is a serious sin. Jesus said it deserves a millstone sentence. But bitterness and unforgiveness is just as serious because I will be held accountable for that. And I believe it's better to forgive the imperfections than to withdraw from the body of Christ. So that's one encouragement to leave. The second encouragement is simply this. The Christian life involves two relationships, yours with the Lord and yours with others. Sometimes the relationship with others tends to shake and shatter our relationship with the Lord. Let's not do that. Let's not let that happen. 
even though the ones around me that I trusted may have felt like they misunderstood or misused me, let's never let that shake our profound and deep trust and and relationship with God. Uh, That must remain intact. The early brotherhood is always worth striving for. It's always worth working for. It's how God is glorified in the world. It says that Christ will know that you're my disciples, or the world will know if you love one another. Ephesians 3.21, Unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. If you really want to glorify God, you just plug in and commit to showing the world how the church works. And let Christ shine through, and that will be a real blessing. So God bless you this morning.